On Tuesday, September 11, 2001, I drove over to Murdoch Elementary School where my son Stephen was in the first grade. I was the volunteer computer tutor for the morning in his first grade class. I've since found out that my certification as the computer tutor has been rescinded, but that's another story. <laughs> Had a good time with, with the boys and girls in that classroom, and at 9 o'clock I said goodbye to the teacher and to Stephen and headed out to my car and picked up my phone and was uh, on my way to the office. I called my called my assistant, Kathy, and said, Kathy, just want to let you know, uh, I'm running a little late today, but this is my Tuesday morning volunteer time. And she said, Glenn, and there was fear in her voice, have you not heard? I said, no, what, what, what's happened? A plane has flown into the World Trade Center. They're saying on the news they think it was intentional. Well, I wasn't far from the school, which meant I wasn't far from home, so I took the first turn I could and headed straight back to my house. Within three minutes, I was in my family room. I turned on the TV, and I was watching, I'm sure, along with all of you as the events unfolded. There was a break 30 or so minutes later in the coverage for local news, and the local news person came on and said that there are rumors spreading quite quickly that Atlanta will be under attack next. Be vigilant and be aware. It was, of course, nothing more than a rumor, but it caused me to be very frightened. I left my house, got in my car, drove back to the elementary school, picked up Stephen. The principal was understanding she had heard the news herself. I then drove to the middle school where my son Nate was a seventh grader and also took him out of school and I was not alone. There were several other parents streaming into the parking lot, walking on into the school to pick up their children too. If we were going to be under attack, I wanted my boys to be with me. I wanted to protect them. I wanted to care for them. And so they went with me back to the church where we spent the rest of the day. I know it seems kind of trite, kind of silly to have reacted in such a way, but it was all we could do. It's at least to be together. I'm having some flashbacks, especially the last couple of weeks, to that terribly anxious day when fear was hovering over our country, filling our hearts and our minds, when we were sure that the next moment was going to bring more disastrous news. I'm having some flashbacks to that as we end this ugly and, and mean-spirited presidential election. It seems as though there is anxiety and fear just permeating our country. One of the things that happened 15 years ago was there was extreme racism exhibited toward Muslims. You know, the, the root of racism really is fear. And the same kind of thing is, is happening again. Racism seems to be gaining strength, not actually waning. Well, this, this presidential election has, has created all sorts of, of issues for folks. Families are dividing. Friendships are disintegrating. Some workplaces are, are undergoing great stress because people can't stand around the water cooler or the coffee pot and talk anymore without the conversation just devolving into an intense argument. It's created some angst for Christians, too. I have many very good friends who I went to high school and college with who are fundamentalist or evangelical in their Christian faith. We've connected over Facebook, and it's been good to reconnect with them, and we've had some good-spirited arguments here and there, but the one thing I've noticed that I share in common with them is a great deal of worry for our country, anxiety about what's going to happen on Wednesday morning of this week. Most of my colleagues in ministry are in churches like Country Club, Methodists and Presbyterians, mainliners, we call them. They are, too, filled with fear, angst, worry, anxious about what will happen no matter who is elected. I, I want to let you know, though, that my, my faith does not depend on decisions of politicians here in the United States of America. And now let me be clear. 
I'm engaged in politics. I'm kind of a, of a political nerd. I love to read all the articles. I, I sit down with the New York Times every morning. I have friends who send me articles from the Wall Street Journal. I read through all that stuff. I love to, to gather as much information as I can and talk with my wife and others about it. And, and in fact, I've volunteered in several campaigns over the years. The first time I did so was in my freshman year of college in 1976. Went around putting up signs and doing all that sort of work. It was quite fun. And I appreciate the work, great work that many politicians do. Uh, former Mayor Kay Barnes is a member of our congregation. She did tremendous work as mayor of our city. You can see a lot of it reflected in, in the Sprint Center downtown and all the great things that are happening, the way our downtown has been revitalized. She was instrumental in a lot of that work. Sly James is, has done a, a great job as, as our new mayor. In fact, because of Steve Boo, who's the chair of our elders, I was able to meet with Mayor James a couple of weeks ago, and basically I volunteered all of you to him. I said, Mayor, Mayor James, we have a wonderful church at 61st and Ward Parkway. We want to work with you to end the things that divide us, especially uh, along racial lines here in, in Kansas City. He said, great, tell them they're signed up. So now, now you know, by the way. So yes, I appreciate the work that, that politicians do, but on the other hand, my faith ultimately, ultimately, is not in politics. My faith, as the old song says, is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. Nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. Maybe a story can, can illustrate why my faith is, on, is in Jesus ultimately and not, not in politics. There was a couple of senators who were having a serious disagreement. One was a Republican and one was a, a Democrat. They, they met every week for, for breakfast and they got into conversations, as you can imagine, about a variety of things. Well, their Christian faith came up and the Republican said, the problem with you Democrats is none of you are faithful. You don't really practice true Christianity like we do. And the Democrats said, oh, come on, you don't understand what you're talking about. The Republican said, yes, I do. In fact, he reached into his wallet, pulled out a $50 bill, set it on the table and said, I'll bet you 50 bucks right now that you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. The Democrat said, great. You're on. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the Republican, he's shaking his head and he says, I can't believe this. You do know it. So forgive me. Forgive me if my ultimate faith is in the love and righteousness of God as revealed in Jesus the Christ and not in what happens on Tuesday night. You know, the, the anxiety and the fear that we, we feel today is not really anything new. 2,000 years ago, the first century church often underwent times of fear and worry. In fact, the church in Thessalonica, uh, that, to whom the letter was written today that we read, they're just shaken to their core by rumors spreading all around their community of war, of destruction. They're, they're worried that, that somehow Jesus has returned and they didn't, they didn't see him and that he's left and now they're going to be forgotten. Or they're worried that perhaps Jesus is about to come but somehow they've missed the news and they're not prepared, they're not ready and when Jesus finds them, they'll be left behind again. They, you see these earliest Christians, they had this very, very deep and sincere belief that Jesus was about to return at, at any moment at any, in any day, in the blink of an eye, the twinkle of an eye, in a very sincere belief. And so here they are, worried that somehow they've missed it. The second coming has happened, or it's about to happen, and they're about to be destroyed, to lose their lives, and that God has, for whatever reason, turned God's back on them. The first verse that Carla read identifies this fear. The author, Paul, or maybe one of his disciples, 
wrote to them and said, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Don't, don't be quickly shaken. That, that phrase, quickly shaken, is the kind that ancient historians use to describe the feeling of an earthquake. Don't be quickly shaken. What they're, what they're implying then, as scholars and historians read through this text, is that perhaps there was a massive earthquake that has frightened these first century Christians into believing that that's a sign, that, that, that things are changing, that the Lord has already come, or maybe he's about to and things are about to get really bad, and who knows for sure. But, you know, an earthquake, can, if you've been in one, felt one, it can be quite frightening experience. It's more than understandable. In fact, you might recall there was a terribly devastating earthquake that struck in, in Haiti just created destruction and death all across that land. Some of you went on a mission trip with us a few years ago to, to respond to that and do what we could. But there, was a, there was a voice here, there were a couple of voices in the, in the United States, in the, in the church, that said, well, uh, this, the reason for this, they, they tried to explain it, the reason is that uh, Haitians have too much voodoo in their country. They believed in voodoo 150 years ago, and, and this is God's retribution for that. Now, that's absolute nonsense. We can be clear about that. But still, you can understand, when there's fear and anxiety, we often rush in with silly proof or foolish thoughts to try to explain what's, what's really going on. And so although we might think of ourselves as not very superstitious, we can still really understand why the church 2,000 years ago might have been filled with fear. And there's actually concrete reasons for their fear, too. Being a Christian in the first century was very difficult. Sometimes you lost your job. Oftentimes you lost respect in the community. You might even be jailed for your beliefs. You would be seen as going against the, the rulings of the government. The Apostle Paul notes that he was beaten on several occasions, once within just an inch of his life, a breath of losing his life. So to be a Christian in those days certainly was a fear-filled choice. And, and, and note this too, that when, when there's anxiety and fear, it leads to all sorts of insecurities and, and issues. I think that's why the most common command in the Bible is don't be afraid. The very first words of the angels spoken over the shepherds to announce the news of Jesus' birth not too far from where they were in Bethlehem was fear not. Someone has said there's, there are 365 different versions of that instruction. Fear not, don't be afraid. Found in the Bible. It's as though God understands that fear oftentimes when there is change is our first reaction. You see, fear and anxiety can blind us to truth. It may not be the worst thing, but like I said about racism, fear is often the nourishment that the roots of our worst isms needs. I read a preacher last week who wrote, Fear disrupts faith and becomes the biggest obstacle to trusting and obeying God. He's right about that. I would add, fear becomes the biggest obstacle to trusting and living with each other. Think about what it can do to your, your, your family, to your marriage, to the way you interact with each other. Now, if you're out here on Ward Parkway and you've got a three-year-old daughter and it's busy Sunday afternoon traffic and she's about to step into it, what will you do? You'll grab her by the arm and you'll pull her back. You'll take absolute control of her because you're afraid that she might be injured. That's the right action. But sometimes when fear dominates our families, we suddenly seek to have control and tightness and anxiety just rules the home. When fear is at work, it can cause us to be blinded to the serious issues in our own homes. Uh, years ago, I saw a couple who were from out of town, who were, had 
getting married here at Country Club Christian Church. They had a lot of family here, and they decided, let's get married in Kansas City. And so they, they, they made the arrangements to be married here in this sanctuary. Came to see me as part of the premarital work that, that, that we require all of our couples to do. They'd taken the prepare and enrich inventory. And it's something that tells you about your strengths and your growth areas and your relationship with each other. And they, their test came back, or their, their results came back normal. And, you know, they had some strengths and some concerns, but nothing serious. Except when we sat down to go through it, I just... Does this ever happen to you? I just kind of had this gut feeling that there's something on the table, but I couldn't tell what it was. You know, the, the elephant in the room or whatever we call that. I just had this, this gut feeling. Came close to the end and it was time to schedule our next appointment to plan the ceremony. Uh, so I just said, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm just wondering, is there something that you haven't named that we need to discuss? Something that, is, that hasn't bubbled out yet? Oh, no, 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 no. They both said, just quickly. Oh, no, no, no. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Why? Which, to my mind, was their way of saying, uh, yes, there is. <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't know. Well, we, we made the appointment. Five or six minutes later, they got up. They're walking out of the office. The groom walked out first, and then she turned around, the bride did, and she came back in, and she said, you know, I have been afraid of one thing. He uses cocaine regularly. Should we talk about that? Yes. <laughs> yes, we should. But, 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 but hear that question carefully. What's the key word in what I said? Afraid. Cocaine's a serious issue. It can create serious problems. It could destroy their marriage before it ever got started. But the, the, the more important word to pay attention to was she was afraid to confront it, to confront him, to confront themselves. Fear too often gives us permission to put on blinders, to avoid the truth, to look the other way. They can, fear and anxiety can keep us from facing the most serious aspects of who we are. Maybe what, what we need then, more than anything else, is courage to face those fears. Parker Palmer was talking about a time when he was in his 40s. He'd kind of hit this point in his life where he'd, he'd done pretty well, he'd achieved some things, but he wasn't quite sure of who he wanted to be or what he was going to become or do next. And so he went off and did one of those outward bound experiences. Do you remember those? It was quite popular several years ago where you'd go off to the mountains or the woods somewhere and you'd hike around and do different things and be challenged in a variety of ways. On the second to last day, all of them were taken over to this cliff in the mountain. They were put in a harness and told, okay, you've got to climb down the side of the cliff. You've got to plant your feet on that, on that cliff, and you've got to get down to the bottom. We've got ropes. We'll take care of you, but you've got to do it. He got into it. He wasn't happy about it. He got a few steps down the side of the cliff, and the instructor from down the bottom yelled up to him, Parker, are you okay? You need to lean back farther. Lean with all of your weight to, out, to the outside. And he thought to himself, this woman is crazy. Every fiber of my being is telling me not to lean out farther, and she's telling me to lean farther. But he did what he was told. He took a few more steps, and then he froze could not move, absolutely frozen in fear. The instructor called down. She said, Parker, are you okay? What's wrong? And he said, to this day, he doesn't know why he used this voice, but in a childlike voice, he said, I just don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, you know, Parker, we have a saying here at Outward Bound, if you can't get out of it, get into it. And he thought to himself, that is such a cliche, and that is so goofy, and it's true. Sometimes if you can't get out of it, you've got to get into it. That's what the Apostle Paul is writing to the, to the church in Thessalonica. You're not going to be able to get out of this. Get into it. Remember the tradition. And when he says remember the tradition, he's not talking about sing this hymn or have this prayer or do this thing. He's reminding them of the, of the teaching of Jesus, of the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that they have received, that that is the one thing they need more than anything else to empower them through 
all that they're facing, their fear, their anxiety, and all the rest, so that their church will be able to move. Sometimes we see the same things happening. In groups like our families, modern churches, even, even entire countries. Richard Rohr wrote, Fear has such control over most lives and most groups because it is hardly ever recognized as such. Listen to his words. Fear is normally thought of as prudent concern, common sense, deserved anger, or another bottom line. Oftentimes when church is gripped by fear, it pretends to be concerned or worried about the bottom line when there's really something else at work. When fear grips a church, it's almost inevitable that if it's not faced, it will decline and close because fear destroys their faith in God and each other. Well, the prescription for dealing with this is there. It's there in the text. It's what, it's what biblical scholars call a benediction. We might call it a closing prayer. It's the last word that, that Carla read for us this morning, the word from Paul or maybe one of his disciples who said to them, Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Do you hear the prescription? Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and through grace the keys for facing whatever we're seeing in this world have already been given to us through love and grace, through the message of Jesus given to the world, through our ability to see every person as a child of God worthy of forgiveness, worthy of compassion. When we begin to live that way, our fear can be overcome. Such a simple thing. But like I said, sometimes it takes courage. Julie and I went to a house concert this week. It was by our friend Bukeka. Do you remember Bukeka? She sings here on Easter quite often. She sang on Mother's Day a couple years ago. Beautiful jazz singer, beautiful voice. She's just an amazing talent. Her mom and, and her sister are members here in, in the church, but we were invited to this little house concert. House concerts are kind of fun. You know, there were 25 or so people who were, who were packed into the, uh, the family room of this, of this, this home not, not too far from here to hear Bukeka. It was just her and a little bit of a sound system and a, a jazz pianist. She was great. It was so fun to be in that place. It's so intimate and so, so, so it pulls you in so strongly to see the emotions on her face as she sings. You can almost feel the, the, the joy in her soul as she's, as she's singing away. At one point towards the end of the concert, though, she sang this song about the universe. And there's a line in it that says, the universe is calling me. And during a bridge in the song, while the, the pianist continued to play, she looked out at the crowd in the family room there, and she said, what's the universe calling you to be? Just anybody who wants to, say, say it out loud. Well, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but I don't like doing that. I, I, I'm not there to be told uh, that I should speak now. I like to speak. I like to preach. I enjoy all this, but I'm in charge of my content. And I, you know, I, they all knew I was a preacher and I was worried. What are they going to think if I say this or say that? What do they think about me? All this thought's going on in my mind as people are saying different things. One is saying, I need to be more thankful. Another says, the universe is calling me to be gracious. Different persons were saying different things. At that point, I decided I'm not going to say anything. And then... This thought formed in my mind as clear as day. <coughs> the universe is calling you to be courageous. 
And another voice in my head said, well, I'm not going to say that out loud in front of all these people. <laughs> I'm not going to do, do that. No way. Are you kidding me? And then the woman standing right behind me, as she was kind of moving to the beat of the song, she said, the universe is calling me to be courageous. I wanted to turn around and say, who do you think you are? <laughs> Instead, I said a, pr- a silent prayer. Okay, Lord, I, I get it. I get it. Too often, decisions in my life, even sometimes in my ministry, have been made out of fear and worry and anxiety. Too often. What is the universe calling you to be? Through the gift of grace, the love of Jesus the Christ, the comfort of the Spirit, what is the universe calling you to be. Whatever it is, when you push fear aside and move forward with courage, it will come. It will come.